Okay, so we are in a series where we're looking at what it means to be an apprentice, a disciple, or a follower of Jesus. And we've seen that a follower of Jesus is someone who orders their life, let's see if I can get this working, around three goals. Um, So they are, oh, it's not quite working yet, Um, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. And if you wanted to summarize it down into one goal, it would be that of transformation. And uh, that's all good, um, but being with Jesus can be a bit of a challenge, can't it, in our busy world? And becoming like him and doing what he did is often a huge challenge. It's a lifetime's journey. So we've started exploring how we can change, looking at the four areas that you can see on the slide, Um, if you can jump forward. Um, So last week, I looked at the role of teaching in transforming our minds, and I think most of us get this. Um, You know, the society we're in has quite a heavy emphasis, doesn't it, on learning and the mind. And here at Three Counties Church, we've also got a a really strong emphasis on Scripture, the importance of Scripture. So I hope we all get that our minds need to be transformed. But this week, I want to pick up where we left off and look at practice, if you can jump forward, um, Alice. Because I think... um, We all realize discipleship to Jesus isn't just about knowing facts. We all intuitively get that, don't we? We don't want to be like the Pharisees who kind of have it all up here. They know the facts, but they don't do any of it. I don't think any of us intentionally want to be hypocrites. But yet we all know that there's often a gap between what we know, if you can jump forward, what we do and what we want to do. So let's open our Bibles back at Matthew chapter 7. So we're Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24. And it says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. What a way to end a story. John Mark Comer uh, wonders how the crowd would have felt as Jesus walked off stage at the end of this parable, you know, and the house fell with a great crash. I mean, it's, it's not a kind of pick him up and sort of leave him on a high kind of ending, isn't it? You know, Jesus, Jesus was making a very serious point He's serious about his message. And Matthew places this parable right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So that's the the collection of Jesus' most important teachings. And in this sermon, Jesus has just set the bar really high. Okay? So the Sermon on the Mount isn't just about what you think. Um, It's not just about what you believe. It's not about believing facts. In fact, it isn't even about doing. You know, Jesus isn't just saying, don't murder. He's going further and saying, Don't even be angry. It's all about heart and attitudes. 
And he knows that we won't get it right first time. We need to practice, if we can go to the next slide. And I love the image of practice. We won't get things right, will we, as followers of Jesus the first time. Um, Practice and perseverance are part of our journey. Although I have to say, it does make me a little bit more concerned when I walk into the dentist and they call it a practice. Because when they're going to put that big drill in my mouth and drill into my teeth, I hope they know what they're doing. I hope they're not just practicing. But anyway, Jesus' image is one of practice. And it's not just here that Jesus talks about practice. Luke chapter 8, verse 21, uh, Jesus has been asked about his mother and brothers, if we can jump to that. Uh, And Jesus takes the opportunity to describe who are his tribe, his family. And he says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Then John 13, verse 17, uh, Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet. He set them an example uh, and said that they should do the same. And then he says, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Simply knowing is not enough. And the disciple James makes it crystal clear in his letter. James chapter 1, if we can read that. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror, sees that they're a mess, and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like and doesn't do anything about the mess. I've just added some bits in there. (laughs) But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. You see, teaching needs to lead to practice. And John Mark Comer has three groupings of practice that I think are helpful if we can run through those. The first are practices based on the lifestyle of Jesus. So those are the traditional spiritual disciplines that we've talked about, things like silence, solitude, Sabbath, fasting, simple living. And these practices, you might say, are more focused on being with Jesus Second group are practices based on the teaching of Jesus. Um, So things like do not worry, love your enemies, store up treasures in heaven, and so on. And you could say these practices are more about being like Jesus. And the third grouping are practices based on the ministry of Jesus, preaching the gospel, healing the sick, justice, compassion. Uh, And these practices are more about doing what Jesus did. And I don't know about you, but when I think about putting what Jesus says into practice, I always think about group two. I always think about the teaching of Jesus, and I've been reflecting on why, and, and, and maybe it's because, maybe it's because I, I guess these are perhaps the more explicit commands in Scripture, Maybe it's because, you know, that's what I've been mostly taught about in church, you know, practices uh, based on the teaching of Jesus. Maybe the things in group three seem a bit more impossible, you know, healing or miracles and so on. Or maybe the things in group one, I mean, while they're modeled by Jesus, they're maybe not as explicitly commanded by Jesus. There's lots of examples of Jesus praying Um, And actually, he teaches the the, the disciples how to pray. He doesn't command them to do it as much. And I've been thinking about that as well. And actually, if you remember in the intro to this series, you know, we said Jesus was a first century rabbi. 
And uh, you know, in that culture, you know, it, it was obvious that if you um, followed a rabbi, you would take on their habits, you would take on their practices. Uh, that, was, that was quite normal. In fact, they would even go further. They would often try and take on the rabbi's mannerisms or their, their way of dressing and so on. So, so maybe back in that culture, it was just assumed that the lifestyle of Jesus would be copied by his followers. And it's important because I've been realizing more and more that the practices in group one around Jesus' lifestyle are key to us being able to do the practices in groups two and three. The practices that are more based around being with Jesus enable us to become like Jesus and to do what he did. Let me try uh, two different angles to illustrate this, if we could jump on to the next one. So the, the, the first one is that practices are a means of obtaining power. And a few weeks ago, I used my lovely wife, Ro, as an illustration for this. Uh, and I asked, I posed the question, what if Ro decided to run a marathon, which is 26.2 miles? I did suggest that she might sort of turn up in all her running gear this morning, but she, she politely declined that one. Um, but if she tried to run that marathon tomorrow, she'd probably die. She just, she just wouldn't make it. Um, but if she decided she wanted to run a marathon in six months' time, then knowing this smart and intelligent lady my wife is, she would probably go online or talk to some people. She would find a training plan. And she would start running a quarter of a mile, or, or maybe even just 100 meters or something, and, and then half a mile, and then a mile, and then two miles, and then, and then five miles, and over a period of months with good diet and perhaps a community of people that she's doing it with to give her some encouragement, she would end up becoming a person with the ability, with the capability of running 26.2 miles. We can always see if we could try that out and, um, as a little experiment, but, but, but how, it, you know, how do you go from being somebody who doesn't have the capability of running the marathon to being somebody who does, well, it's through practice. And uh, so practice is a way to obtain power. And I'm sorry, my Northern Ireland accent, I always gravitate to saying power with just one syllable. I know you guys here in England normally have two syllables in it, so I'll try and anglify my accent a little bit. But it's the same with other sports, isn't it? You know, footballers do those drills like in and out of cones, don't they? And they pass to one another. It's not because that's what they're wanting to do. It's because those drills enable them to have capability, power, the skill in the game. And my son's learning tennis. Sometimes I join lessons with him. And, and we do little disciplines, little practices or drills that, that help discipline our bodies. So I'm trying to do that top spin sort of, you know, forehand serve. I'm, I'm rubbish at it. I normally, the ball goes this way. You want the ball to go straight. So you think you would hit the racket straight, but no, you have to go from down to up. And it feels very counterintuitive, but the more I'm doing it, the more I'm finding actually I get the right results in terms of the ball going the right way into the court. And it's the same in music. You know, musicians will do scales on the piano and so on, or on the guitar. And you don't do that because you want to play scales for the rest of your life. You do that to give yourself power and, and capability in, in playing your instrument. Or vocabulary, you know, you'll learn lots of vocab, not because you want to sit with somebody and go through lists of words, but to, to give you freedom and ability to express yourself. 
So a practice or a discipline is a way to access power. A spiritual discipline is a way to access the power of the Spirit. I've got to get a Dallas Willard quote in, so here it comes. The disciplines are activities of mind and body purposefully undertaken to bring our personality and total being into effective cooperation with the divine order. They enable us more and more to live in a power that is, strictly speaking, beyond us, deriving from the spiritual realm itself. And I'll leave it there. So if we want to be able to live up to the life, to the teaching of Jesus and perform the ministry of Jesus, we need to be living the lifestyle of Jesus in order to have any chance. If you can jump to the next one, Alice. So Jesus practiced, well, let's, let's go through them. He practiced prayer. If you, it's a couple of ones if you, if you jump forward. So prayer. One of the first things in Matthew, actually, we have the disciples saying, teach us to pray. I reckon they probably seen Jesus at it a lot, and they wanted to learn. Silence and solitude. Jesus often went up a mountain. We hear from doing that, don't we? Um, just before dawn, to be with his Father to take time out of the craziness, to listen for the Father's still small voice, to make sure that his heart was still in a good place of being yielded to the Father. Sabbath, one day in seven, for Jesus, it would have been Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, um, Jesus ceased work. He took time out to worship, to meet with God's people. Um, you know, we, we, we think Jesus was at synagogue every single Sabbath um, in his life. And he took time to enjoy God, to refresh his soul. He wasn't legalistic about it. When, when he was walking through a field with the disciples and they picked a few ears of corn because they were hungry, he didn't say, hey, you guys are harvesting. That's work. Can't do that. No, he, he knew they were, they were just hungry. They just, they just needed something to eat. He realized Sabbath was made for humanity, was a gift to us, rather than humanity being made to observe the Sabbath. Fasting. Jesus would regularly fast from food. We read, you know, before his temptation, he had a 40-day fast. Community, he opened himself to people around him. He had his three closest friends. He had the 12 disciples. He had the 72 disciples. And he had a wider group of hundreds, maybe even thousands of people that followed him that were his team. And celebration. He was happy to eat and drink. He wasn't a killjoy. You know, in fact, I think one of the reasons people wanted to be with Jesus, because he just brought joy wherever he was. So Jesus, and these are just a few of the examples of his practices. So why did Jesus have these practices built into his lifestyle? Well, there's, there's two reasons that I'd like to suggest. First, as well as being 100% God, Jesus was 100% human, and he needed these practices in his life so that he uh, could be with his father. So, so he needed them so he could maintain that relationship and for his ministry. But the second reason, I think, was really as an example for us. Because he knows that we need these practices for our relationship with the father, for our holiness, um, and for our ministry. Perhaps a lot more than Jesus. So, the practices of Jesus' lifestyle or the spiritual disciplines are a means of obtaining power. And the second angle I want to share is, is this. 
Our practices get uh, into us, not through our mind, but through what the Bible calls the heart. What is our heart? Um, James K.A. Smith, a philosopher, a Christian philosopher and, and, and writer, says, the heart is the fulcrum of your most fundamental longings. The heart is the way you point to the world. It's the direction of your love. So we're all human, and to be human means to love. So the question isn't, you know, do we love or not? The question is, what do we love? And our, our problem is not that we don't love. It's often that we love the wrong things, isn't it? So the question that you and I need to answer as followers of Jesus is this. What do I love? Because how you answer that question will define you. Your heart, the direction of your love, is like an engine driving you forward to that vision of the good life that you have in your mind's eye. Our wants and longings and desires are really at the core of our identity So scripture says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything else, everything you do, flows from it. And I think the lifestyle practices of Jesus, his habits, reverse that process I mentioned at the beginning, because they get into us through our hearts. They get in at our heart and they shape our wants, which then in turn influence what we do, if we can jump one forward, and then in turn influence our mind and our world view. Let's just listen to what James K.A. Smith says. He says, discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. Discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than it is of knowing and believing. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all a vision encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God, his loving rule and reign. So one of the primary tasks of discipleship is learning to curate our hearts. Because if you're anything like me, your heart is prone to wonder, and they need to be recalibrated. And that's why teaching and practice go hand in hand. And I have to confess, I'm reasonably new to this. As many of you know, I'm more of a thinking person than a feeling person. I remember quite early in my relationship with Ro, my future mother-in-law asked me how I felt about something. And I started to respond saying, I think. And Anne immediately jumped in and said, David, I didn't ask you how you thought. So I asked you what you felt. And... um, Many of us, so many of us, have been through a mind-first education system in our school or A-levels, maybe university. And at church, we often also focus on the mind. Scripture is so important, the mind is important, but that is often what 
we, we focus on. That's what teaching is primarily about. And we get that we need to transform our minds. But I, we struggle, or at least I did, that we need the lifestyle practices of Jesus. Let me take fasting as an example. This was a big part of spiritual life. Well, right through the Bible and church history, but in Jesus' day, and even 200 years ago, in the time of John Wesley, many, perhaps even most Christians, fasted twice a week. Imagine that. I think probably many Christians these days have never fasted once in their life, never mind twice a week. Why? Because I think most of us with our Western worldview simply don't get that spiritual transformation can happen not through our mind, but through our stomach. Fasting is one of the most powerful spiritual disciplines there is. It does something to your heart. It calls out your love. It teaches you, sometimes rather brutally, to say no to your desires. But it doesn't do that through your mind. It does it through your tummy. And teaching is important, but so is practice. And I'm beginning to realize that for me, I've probably overbalanced on teaching in my life and underbalanced, sadly, on practice. Our habits give rise to our desires, and you have a say in what you love. The decisions you make on a daily or weekly basis point your loves and your desires in a particular direction. How did Jesus advise us in this area? Well, he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And how do we do that? Well, I think it's through practicing the way of Jesus, through taking on his habits. So let me just bring this into land and think about application. My, my question or request of you is this. Take a liturgical audit. I, this is from James K.A. Smith, and, and I figure that lit, liturgical must mean Something to do with habits or practices, right? I'm not, I'm not a high Anglican by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so he says, what are your habits and practices? Why don't you write them down and just do this for a week? You know, I, I, I did it today. The first thing I did today was to brush my teeth. I'm sure you'd be glad to know that. And then when I got downstairs, um, I actually went down to my little office to turn on the heating, and I opened then the curtains upstairs, and then I made a cup of coffee. So, so to write these down and then see if you can make a connection with your habits and your heart. And some might be good, some like me opening the curtains. It was nice just to open the curtains and see the day. That, that brings life to me. That's, that's good. Some might be neutral and some actually might be negative. You might, I don't know, be on Facebook or Instagram or something and, and actually that's taking your heart towards envy. Um, think, think, think those through. And then, second thing, pick a habit, preferably not a good one, uh, either a bad one or a neutral one, and cut it out and replace it with one of the habits of Jesus that for you is going to be life-giving. So it could be coffee with another follower of Jesus. It could be pursuing justice or compassion in some way. It could be just going for a walk in the woods with God for 15 minutes. Replace it 
with one of the habits of Jesus. And the third thing, discuss it with your small group. So hopefully you're in a small group. If you're not, you can email the office. Hopefully we can pop up the office email address uh, and you can just say, hey, can you connect me with a small group? But discuss it with your small group. See how others are finding this. See what you've discovered um, and see how it's working for you. Because discipleship to Jesus is much more than a belief system. It's a way of life. We're not just after behavior modification. If we can press the next button, we want our heart to be in the right place so that what we want to do is shaped by Jesus. That then influences what we actually do and then influences our mind and our worldview. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you are just so holistic. Thank you that you care for our minds, but you also want us to love you with all of our hearts and all of our souls too. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to understand more about the power of our habits And just to submit those to you, to yield all of our, you know, funny little, you know, habits or intricacies or just the things we do, to yield them to you. And Lord, if you put your finger on one or two and say, well, why don't you change them? Lord, help us just to have the courage to do that. And to replace them with something that will be life-giving, something that's of you. Because, Lord Jesus, we long to to be with you, and we also long to become like you, and we long to do what you did. Thank you, Lord. Amen.